0: The information in this skill is provided for informational and educational purposes only. Welcome, and thank you for listening to the SMA Flash
1: Briefings. Hi, I'm Price Woodridge. As a rare neuromuscular disorder patient myself, I enjoy reading Flash Briefings for Spinal Muscular Atrophy. Here's an article by Steve Bryson, Ph.D. New Spinraza Delivery Technique for Patients with Spinal Deformities For spinal muscular atrophy patients with spinal deformities, administration of spinraza or Nusinersen by a novel subcutaneous intrathecal catheter system improved upper limb function, a small study reports. This delivery technique, however, increased the risk of mechanical malfunction and infections, the researchers noted. The Study Nusinersen by Subcutaneous intrathecal Catheter for Symptomatic Spinal Muscular Atrophy Patients with Complex Spine Anatomy was published in the journal Muscle and Nerve. Spinraza is a disease-modifying therapy approved to treat SMA. It is designed to increase the levels of SMN, a protein essential for the health of motor nerve cells. People with SMA lack SMN protein, leading to progressive muscle weakness and atrophy breathing problems, and skeletal complications. Spinraza is administered by intrathecal injection directly into the cerebrospinal fluid surrounding the spinal cord. Treatment takes place in hospitals or clinics by staff trained in performing the procedure. However, in advanced cases, skeletal complications and spinal deformities can complicate Spinraza administration. Clinicians based at the Clinic for Special Children in Pennsylvania recently developed a subcutaneous intrathecal catheter system that combines an intrathecal catheter tube with an implanted infusion port for SMA patients with complex spine anatomy. For the first 10 patients, the surgical implantation of SIC took no more than two hours, allowed Spinraza to be administered in the outpatient setting, and eliminated the need for pain medications breathing precautions, or sedation. SIC now has been used in a total of 17 pediatric and adult SMA patients, with two-thirds having significant scoliosis and or fusion surgery to correct spinal deformities. The goal of this study Partially funded by a grant from the therapy's manufacturer, Biogen, was to evaluate the safety and tolerability of SIC and assess the effectiveness of Spinraza in a subgroup of symptomatic SMA patients with complex spine anatomy due to long-term muscle weakness. The 17 participants began Spinraza therapy from about 3 to 32 years old and received 9 to 12 doses by SIC. Of these, one was diagnosed with SMA type 1, 14 participants had SMA type 2, and the remaining two had SMA type 3. The team recorded 26 adverse events among 12 participants, who received a total of 203 doses of Spinraza. The SIC device, not Spinraza, caused all 14 AEs that were related to treatment. Mechanical malfunction accounted for 5 AEs. One wound failed to heal correctly, and two AEs were a CSF leak, leading to five outpatient surgical revisions among four participants. One patient experienced a headache and low-grade fever after 12 doses, and the CSF reservoir became infected with Staphylococcus epidermidis, resulting in its permanent removal. From an analysis of 138 CSF samples withdrawn for testing, average 8 per patient. Half had elevated red blood cells, but patients did not experience symptoms. A subset of 11 patients were included in the efficacy analysis, in which Spinraza began at a mean age of 18 and who received a mean of 11 doses over about two to three years. The mean pretreatment revised Hammersmith scale, or RMS, score for motor function was 7.6. The maximum RHS score is 69, with higher scores reflecting better motor function. Of these 11 patients, 9 had spinal fusion and 2 had scoliosis. The mean performance of the 9-hole PEG test to measure manual dexterity increased in the dominant hand by 15.9% and in the non-dominant hand by 19%. The mean grip strength improved by 44.9% but strength in other muscle groups was unaffected. There was no change in RHS or lung function. All of these patients reported one or more subjective improvements in speech, 25%, head and neck control, 42%, arm strength, 42%, physical endurance, 58%, and the use of hands for handwriting, typing, or maneuvering a power wheelchair, 75%. Pediatric quality of life scores compared physical to emotional disability did not change in response to therapy, except for the National Institute of Health Toolbox Emotion Domain, with a small but significant increase of 8%. Before treatment, the sum total force, by dynamometry in various body parts, showed a strong correlation with the Compound Muscle Action Potential, or CMAP, which assesses electrical impulses in muscle function. Some total force also moderately correlated with fascio-related neurofilament heavy chain, or PNFH, in the CSF, a marker for motor neuron degeneration. However, these parameters did not change with Spinraza treatment. The levels of PNFH in blood samples of SMA patients were similar to values collected from a control group of 55 healthy family members. They did not correlate with CSF, PNFH, or any other measure of motor function. For patients with complex spine anatomy, the SIC allowed for reliable outpatient administration of spinraza that results in meaningful improvements of upper limb function, but introduces risks of technical malfunction and treatment-related infection," the authors wrote. Coming up next, Perspectives from SMA News Today Forum's moderator, Deanne Runge.
0: Thanks for joining me. I'm Deanne Rungi, SMA News Today content creator. Today I want to share an article with you that I think hits the nail on the head where disability is concerned. Halsey Blacker, in her recent article, There's More Than One Correct Way to Talk About Disability, discusses how there's differing opinions on how disability should be referenced. But that's okay. Here's her article. A few months ago, my brother came to my room to repeat what our mom had just instructed him to tell me. With a slightly sarcastic yet serious tone, he informed me that he could no longer refer to me as a wheelchair user because one of his college textbooks stated that the correct verbiage was person who uses a wheelchair. My mom and brother both knew I wouldn't entirely agree with this information, and they mostly shared it to see what my reaction would be. Yet while the intent was to amuse, it also prompted an intriguing late-night conversation about how we should refer to other people, particularly people in the disability community. It's a conversation I'd like to continue exploring in this column. The term person who uses a wheelchair is considered to be person-first language. In other words, it focuses on the person being referenced instead of on their disability. This way of speaking is intended to acknowledge someone for who they are as a whole person and not define them by their disabilities. Another common example of person-first language is saying person with a disability, rather than stating that someone is disabled or referring to them as a disabled person, which are examples of disability-first language. I mentioned that I don't quite agree with what my brother's textbook says, But please don't think I'm at all against the use of person-first language. I fully support it and often use it, especially in the company of friends who prefer it. The part I disagree with is the insistence that this is the only correct way to speak about someone with a disability. I don't believe we can properly describe such a diverse group of people with just one type of terminology. Our disabilities, personalities, interests, and backgrounds are all unique, and we need more than one way of speaking to reflect our uniqueness and how we see ourselves. I typically alternate between person-first and disability-first language when I'm speaking about myself, although I tend to favor the latter. While I find both to be entirely acceptable, I generally prefer to call myself disabled. To me, this doesn't mean I'm allowing SMA to overshadow any other aspect of my life. It means I'm acknowledging its existence and showing that I want others to acknowledge it too. In a column titled, Actually, My Disease Does Define Me, Alyssa Silva writes that she sees SMA as a part of her identity. People in the disability community are often taught that we aren't defined by our disabilities and thus we're encouraged to separate them from our identities. The idea that we aren't defined by our disabilities isn't bad. It's meant to empower and free us from our perceived limitations that might be imposed on us either by ourselves or by others due to the presence of our disabilities. And for some, it does exactly that. Muscular Dystrophy News Today columnist Hocken Miller writes that viewing himself as not disabled, helps him cope with Duchenne muscular dystrophy and keep a positive perspective on his situation. Like Alyssa, I do consider SMA to be part of my identity. Much like my faith, relationships, clothing choices, and career, SMA influences how I see myself and how others see me. I'm proud of the way it has helped shape my life and identity, and I want how I speak about myself to be representative of that. Societal pressure to conform to the excessive use of person-first language or correcting someone's chosen language can give the false impression that disability is something shameful to be hidden away, which Brad Dell discusses in this column on Cystic Fibrosis News Today. Brad isn't the only one to experience this. I've also had kind-hearted people correct me when I call myself disabled, and well-intended campaigns have told me that the way I talk about myself is wrong, Even though it's not the intent, it can feel isolating and invalidating. So what exactly is the right way to talk about a person with a disability? That's the question we started with, but instead, maybe we should be asking why we're trying to limit the solution to just one correct answer. I'm a disabled woman who supports person-first language, and I have wonderful friends who are people with disabilities. These are things we've chosen for ourselves and none of us are wrong. There isn't and shouldn't be a blanket terminology that fits everyone in the disability community. We're all different and that's beautiful. We're stronger because of it. If you ever need to know how you should talk about someone, ask them what they prefer. That's the most respectful thing to do. What kind of language do you prefer? Tell me in the comments below. Thanks for sharing this, Halsey. I know there are a lot of differing opinions. I happen to have a similar viewpoint as you, but not everybody does, and that's okay. If you'd like to share what your opinion is, either comment below her article on the SMA News Today website, or head on over to our forums at smanewstoday.com forward slash forums, and we can continue the discussion. That's all I have for you today. We'll talk again soon. Bye for now. The information in our flash briefings and podcasts are provided for informational and educational purposes only. Be sure to tune in daily to SMA News Today for the latest news and perspectives regarding the disease. Discover more content that might be of interest to you at www.smanewstoday.com and be sure to follow us on social media and join our SMA News Today forums,
1: a trusted SMA community ready to welcome you anytime.